Welcome back to the Young Adult Edition spin-off podcast, Hey, I'm Writing. Today, I'm talking to author Megan O'Russell on how she got into the publishing industry. Now, Megan is a dear friend of ours over at Young Adult Edition and on my author platform, but this is her first time here on Hey, I'm Writing. And the cool thing about Megan is she's not just a novelist. She's also an actress, she's a lyricist, and she's a playwright. And the woman travels all around the country creating amazing art through her acting skills. And this sometimes translates over to her books as well. Now, I always have a great time chatting with Megan, so I don't want to hold you up from this interview. Let's dive right in and learn a little bit about how Megan actually got into the publishing industry and take a look at her journey because she's got some great tips and tricks along the way. So are you ready? Let's go ahead and dive in. Megan O'Russell, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on. You are a good friend of ours over at Young Adult Edition. You've been on our show a couple of times, and we're excited to have you at the Hey, I'm Writing podcast for Young Adult Edition. I want to dive in and talk to you about your journey into publication. So what did that look like for your very first book as you were putting that out into the world? My oh, my very first book had a very interesting journey. Uh it was picked up by a traditional publisher very quickly. I think I only submitted for like two months, which is great. Um, unfortunately, between the time I was got, I got the call and was offered the contract, and when they mailed me the contract, that publisher shut down, uh, which was not wow. great. <laughs> no. Less than ideal. Uh, so I started submitting again and ended up with another publisher about another two months after that. Um, Got all the way through content edits, line edits, had a cover, had a cover reveal, had swag printed. And then about six weeks before the book was set up, set to go out, um, that publisher closed. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah. It was it was not the best time. Um, managed to get in with another publisher. <laughs> wow. Um, yes. And then the book was finally released. The Tethering was my first release novel. It went through three different publishers to get there. Um, the third publisher did, in fact, close as well. Uh, wow. So now um, that is one of the books that I have indie published. Uh, I avoid small presses now because I am the kiss of death and I don't want to, you know, ruin other people's dreams by shutting down small presses with my presence. So I avoid them. <laughs> but that, that was the journey to publication for the tethering. That's amazing. And you've got a lot of power. And the thing is, I'm actually watching your indie journey right now. And you are just a powerhouse with that. So the fact that you managed to close down three publishers, <laughs> it's pretty good. There was actually um, a fourth, a fifth. There were five, but only three of them had contracts with the tethering. <laughs> wow. That yeah. is intense. How's, how's the book doing now? It's doing great. It's out in the world. The full series is finally published, which is amazing. I got to go with cover designs that I was really happy with. I had full artistic control over the process and full business control over when I wanted them published. So yeah, it's been great. Going indie with those books was a very difficult but great decision. So you've actually been through quite a bit within your publishing journey. Can you tell me a little bit, what is something that you learned early on that could benefit some of our listeners who are maybe just getting into the industry now? Um, I think, hmm, there's like the, 
the hopeful piece of advice and the sort of cynical piece of advice, I'll give you both. You can, you know, pick which one you want. The hopeful piece of advice is there is always another path to publication. There is always a way to get your work out there. And if for you, that looks like waiting it out, getting an agent, getting a traditional publisher, that's fine. If that doesn't work out, your dreams are not smashed. There are other ways. If your dream is just to put your book out there, there are so many options. So don't look at one road and think it's this or nothing. That is absolutely not true. On the other hand, when you get that happy email or phone call and they tell you that you have a publishing contract, that is not the end. There are so many more twists and turns and editors who decide that they don't like your work once you have a contract and publishers that shut down and bad releases. So book two doesn't come out. So there is no end to this journey. There is no aha success moment where everything is laid out for you forever. It is a unending maze of roads. And that is the beauty of it and the horror of it all in one. I think that's the perfect way to summarize the publishing journey. Honestly, no matter what route you take, there's always going to be something, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Always something else, which it's great because it's it's always another opportunity. But there is no, because I'm in theater as well, there is no like big opening night where you're like, yay, the show is open. It's done. No, no. But you know what? There's so much control and such an amazing community, especially within indie authors, that it's totally worth it. But just don't set your heart on signing that contract being like the end and you've done it. No, that's that's not true. A lot of go- work goes into this after you get that contract or after you are, um, you've decided which route you're taking within the publishing industry. And I know you personally have come up against a lot of obstacles. You've told us a little bit about some of them. So how have you pivoted in your business and your author brand to get to where you need to be? And what do you have to do with your mindset to get around some of those not so nice things? Um. Everything sort of changed for me in December 2018, January 2019. Um, At the time, I had 13 books under contracts between two different publishers. And within a span of about two and a half weeks, I lost both those publishers. One went under entirely. One was a, a very bad situation that I decided to get out of before it got worse. And had a small nervous breakdown. There was a lot of crying and food involved. And then I talked to some wonderful people like you, like my agent, and was like, I I don't know what to do because for previously published books, it is very hard to get a new publishing contract. And at that point, for lack of a better term, a lot of my work had been tainted by publishing houses that had closed. And so my agent sort of said, we can try you'd probably end up with another small press that would probably close because you had signed on with them. Or you can choose to go indie, which is really kind of amazing that my agent was very cool with that. Um, And I made the decision to take control and to release my entire backlist. And it was ridiculously overwhelming because you don't really think about when you're with a traditional publisher, even if it's a small press, 
all of the little things that go into publishing. And, you know, you think about the editing, the cover design, but the actual uploading of the manuscripts, the actual formatting of the manuscripts, all of those little things that you don't really understand because it's not your job. And so that learning curve was very, very steep, but it was entirely worth learning because it's, it's not just an artistic thing anymore. It is a business to me. That was the biggest mindset shift that this is a business. Uh, but getting to treat it as that and getting to take control of it was a great decision. And honestly, things like formatting and uploading manuscripts, the author community is so open and loving and amazing that if you say, I don't know how to do this, someone will answer. Someone will say, get this computer program. Someone will say, oh, honey, no, you can't do that. Someone will help you. And that's the best thing is there is always someone willing to say, I've been where you are. Let me walk you through this. You're going to be okay. And that's great. I love that we can kind of come together, especially in the indie industry, and really help support each other. Have you kind of built yourself a support system or a tribe that you always go to to check on things, to handle things, to make sure you're getting feedback within your own business? Absolutely. There are, I have like little niches of people. So there's like my, my, um, actually some of my readers are retired English teachers. And so I have this little like typo hunter beta reader club who like totally look out for me and they send me the nicest emails back and they're like, Oh, you missed this one again. I'm like, Oh, thanks. You're the best. So those people are great. And then I happen to have like amazing people who like you talk me down when I freak out about release schedules and then, you know, other indie YA support groups where I'm like, ah, is this a really bad idea? Have you tried this? Am I going to like destroy everything I've built? And sometimes they're like, oh, I did that. Don't, don't do that. Or they're like, you know what? Try it. Go for it. So there are all these little niches that I can go to with different questions and it's, it's amazing. And it's, I, as I said, I'm, I'm in theater. So it's amazing in the writing community, how willing people are to share their knowledge, how willing people are to say, use this program. Oh, this is who I did it. Oh, this is who my designer is. There is no like nasty caddy, like this is my information and you can't have it, which is very different from theater where no one wants to share any information because it's also like there's one lead and we all have to get it. But there are so many readers, there is space for all of us. And so it's, it's really great. It's, an amazing community. It is an amazing community. I have a lot of fun hanging out and just learning from all the people involved. Is there anywhere in particular that you go to actually learn within the industry, whether it's writing or the business side of things? Um, I hang out a lot in AAYAA, which is, I believe, spells out to an alliance of young adult authors. Yeah. Um, they also have a marketing exchange group. Um, 20 books to 50 K is another great group. They are a little intimidating to me. I stay very silent and I just like click the little follow button and read all the answers, but I get a lot of great information off of clicking the follow button and reading the answers. I also took the, um, SPF mastery course. So I'm in a Facebook group for that. I have some people that I just like 
have long-standing message threads with. And actually, from all of my closed publishers, we each have these little, like, recovery groups. (laughs) (laughs) So from, like, not the first publisher, because I didn't get into the Facebook group before they shut down, because I hadn't actually signed the contract yet. It was still in the mail. Um, But the rest of them, there are these little niches of people who have been going on their author journeys. And some people have left. They don't write anymore, but they're still there and are like, let me support you and share your stuff on social media. One of the more recent ones has a very active community. We've been on like a binge of talking about audio lately because none of us were ever really allowed to explore that with our former publisher. So it's, it's great. All kinds of little niches. That's so much fun. Um, And I know because all of your publishers kind of closed down and you did rebrand on your own, we had a fan write in with a question for you. So let's jump in. You recently rebranded a bunch of your books. Have you found that that's helped your sales? And what have you learned the most from the rebrand? I absolutely think it has helped my sales. Uh, A lot of it is that I didn't have any control when I was with my former publishers. So there were a lot of artistic decisions that didn't fit the books. I don't think my cover artists read the blurbs on some of them before they made the covers. There was a weird incident with tentacles at one point. So getting to actually talk to the cover artist and say, like, this is what I want. This is where I want to go with it. And then to make sure that the branding stays tight from cover to cover within the series. To make sure that I have a hand in, like, this is what I want to portray. This is how I want it to look has absolutely helped. I also wanted to create for my Girl of Glass series, I I created a complete collection. And that is... It's a dystopian paranormal. So there's sort of two primary cover tropes for that genre. It's either like angsty person or symbolism. And the covers for the series are all very symbolic. There's a magnolia blossom on it. But I wanted to see if by using the angsty cover for the box set, if I could reach a different niche, someone who looks for, you know, the the moody teen staring off into the distance. And I would never, ever have been allowed to create a complete collection with my former publishers or ask for a different cover. But I did, and it worked. It absolutely worked. I am reaching two different niches of people with the same text. It's the same intellectual property, but because I have a box set genre cover and I have a regular genre cover, I'm reaching two different audiences. And that's really pretty great. That's fantastic. So do you market them differently? Do you run ads to both of them? What are you doing to kind of reach those two different niches? I run Amazon ads to both of them. I, I've never been super successful with Facebook ads. I've had a, I had a book bub on book one in the series by itself. And I had an, an international book bub on the box set, the full box set. And both of them went really well, but it's just Amazon ads. I run them in two different sets. They're in two different files. I, when I search the terms for them, I search a little bit differently. So the, the individual books, I veer more towards the dystopian, the box set, because it is the paranormal cover. I veer more towards paranormal keywords, but yeah, it's great. Do you find you have a lot of success with those keyword-based ads? Have you tried any of the sponsored product ads? Like, what does that look like for you? Um, I The one thing I haven't tried is lock screen ads. Um, 
that's where I get too nervous. The bids are too high for me. Um, I have tried sponsored product ads. I have tried keyword ads. I'm still experimenting. Honestly, the book that I thought was not going to sell, it's like my little, I don't know if I'm allowed to say bastard child on your podcast. No. <laughs> so the little like little blank space. So the, the little black sheep book um, that was sort of in the corner, uh, I did not think that my Tale of Brian Adams series was going to sell. The titles are very long. The first one is How I Magically Messed Up My Life in Four Frickin' Days, which is so hard to put on a cover and does not fit in tweets. That was not wise in retrospect, but I... I had the first two books finished, and so I went, when I was going through the rebranding and releasing my backlist, I was like, okay, um, let's do it. Let's put it out there and see what happens. I sell so much Bryant and paperback, a ridiculous amount. And I, I run the sponsored products and the keyword ads to Bryant, and my ACoS is crazy low for paperback. And you're running it to the paperback or to the ebook? I run it to both, but the paperback, like I, it's in KU. It's my only series in KU. I get KU reads the ebook. I get like good sales on still within like the good percentage of how much money I'm spending. But the thing that always surprises me is how many paperbacks I sell of this weird little book that I was like, I should put it back out. I shouldn't just shelve him. And Bryant does really well for himself. Apparently, like, a snarky 16-year-old wizard is going well, especially in Germany. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. So you study your fan base pretty closely then. Do you kind of feel like you have a lot of U.S. representation within your fan base? Or do you get a lot of people outside of the U.S. following your books as well? I have most of my sales come in from the U.S. Um, I was doing fairly well in Germany before the AMS dashboard allowed me to start advertising in Germany. The Bryant ads in Germany go really well. As far as like not advertising, just like general overall of my books, I do very well in the US, the UK, and Australia. I do pretty well in Canada. Bryant is the only thing that goes really well in Germany, but he goes really well in Germany. And then I have like other random places as well. Um, I am on Google Play. I'm not going to lie. There are some country codes that I sell in. I don't know what they mean. Um, and I always mean to look it up, but it's like little island nations. I have a right. lot of little island nations. Um, so that's cool. It's a lot of different countries and that's great. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. So a very strong international. I've also gotten onto publish drive to try and reach some more of the international territories that aren't available through like draft to digital or other aggregators like that. But yeah, lots of, lots of international fun though. I will say most of my newsletter is still American based. Interesting. It's always interesting to kind of take a look at where the fan base is and who's following you from where and which books. And I just love getting into the numbers of things. Are you kind of one of those statistic people? I, I'm to a point, I love the statistics and the numbers until it gets to the Amazon ads <laughs> um, because the numbers aren't right. And I think anyone who's played with Amazon ads, we can all look at that and say, this isn't right. Your numbers are lying. 
because it doesn't report all the sales that are actually from it. It doesn't count your page reads. It started counting sales for a book I wasn't advertising on there. It was counting them on my dashboard. I don't know how that worked. And so I have a a problem maintaining spreadsheets on it because it makes me so mad that it's not right. And I think that's why I love like Facebook ads as much as they drive me crazy because they're so finicky. And when you get into like creating your own audience, it's so hard. But I love how precise their numbers are. And you can see like, oh, I got this many signups at this many cents from this image. Great. But Amazon's just like, ah, you sold some stuff. Good for you. And you're like, oh, that's not helpful. Thank you. (laughs) So it's, it's too much guesswork for me. The rest of it, I enjoy numbers until it's AMS. And then I no. Yeah, I think we can all side with you on that one. That can be a little on the frustrating side, unfortunately. Yes, I'm actually uh, training my husband to take over my Amazon ads. Oh, that's fantastic. So you're building your team out. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, It's great. He, uh, he works with me a lot on the different areas of all the publishing we do, but it sort of got to the point where he was like, if there was one more thing I could take off your plate, and I was like, Amazon ads. And he's like, well, if you could only pick one, Amazon ads would be great. There you go. (laughs) That's what I want you to do. And so he started looking at them and taking them over. I also, maybe it's like a self-esteem issue. I have a tendency to turn off my ads probably sooner than I should. If you count and read through, I'm like, ah, this ad's too expensive. And so I think my ads will probably go better with him in charge of them just because he won't shut them off so quickly when it would probably make a profit if I was just a little bit more confident in my read-through rate, which I can run the numbers and I know my read-through rate, but I just have a problem accepting that. So yeah, I think him helping is, is going to be a, a game changer for us. That's fantastic. Now that you've been in the industry for how many years? Eight. Eight yeah, years. Eight. Now that you've been in the industry and a published author for eight years, Tell me if you could go back and tell your debut self something that you've learned along the way that you could start a little bit earlier, what might that be? Would it be to invest in ads and then hand it off to your husband so that it's out of the way? Or what would we be talking about here? Uh, I think first I would tell myself that signing the paper doesn't make it real and hold on, it's still a long ride. And I think the the business-ended advice that I would give myself is to start a newsletter much sooner. I was never encouraged to by any of my publishers. They never mentioned it was something that a traditionally published author could do. They just wanted me to send everyone to their newsletter, which makes sense. I mean, you know, but I should have stepped away from that and started it much sooner. I think I would have been in a much stronger position to tell readers that I had from my trad published days, the rest of the series is now out. And I lost a lot of those readers because they had to wait too long. That makes sense. And I like that you kind of leaned into creating that newsletter. That's obviously something very important within your business. But the fact that you were sending out that information to them as opposed to your publishers, where you got to control it and you got to be in charge of what writing you were sending out there. I want to switch gears just a little bit on that note and talk about your writing process. So how has that changed over the years from the time you started to where you are eight years later now? Um. A lot of it's fairly similar. I 
because I am in theater. I know it keeps sneaking in there. My schedule is so abnormal. Twice in the past eight years, I've spent a year living on a tour bus. Um, sometimes I run away to Alaska for the summer. So I don't really have the kind of set schedule most authors thrive on. I don't have the ability to have like a, a consistent space or a consistent time. Frequently, I'm living in theaters where I'll have like 12 roommates so there is no there is no such thing as quiet. There is no such thing as like a schedule. Um, I have learned to adapt to that. What I tried to do, as it's a one show day, which is like the ideal. So I'm not going into work till like seven o'clock at night for the show. I will wake up. I'm not a morning person. Mornings are bad. So I will do like my little nitpicky businessy things first, you know, answer the emails, check on the social media, make sure the world hasn't fallen apart. Then I will go back through whatever I wrote the day before, give that a first round of edits so that I know exactly where I am in the story, make sure I haven't done anything horrible to myself. And then I will complete my word count for the day, which varies depending on if I'm living on a bus or not. Um, from there, hopefully I still have time and I will go back and work on whatever other editing projects I need to do now that I've added ads into it, then ads, blogging, more in-depth social media time, all of those different things. But the writing, wherever I am, even if it's, you know, curled up on the floor of a bus or, you know, huddled in a cafeteria in Alaska, it always starts with redoing what I did the day before, making sure that's got a first layer of editing on it, and then moving on to the next section. That makes sense. And if you guys want to hear more about Megan's journey as an actress, she was actually on Young Adult Edition. You can check out that episode. We'll link it down in the show notes. And we get to hear kind of the behind the scenes of what it's like to live on a tour bus. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but because you do kind of live on a tour bus and you're running off to Alaska and you're doing all of these fun things, you don't necessarily have a writing space that is super consistent. So what do you try to do in your physical space and then what do you do on your computer screen in terms of programs, the documents you have up to make sure that you are consistent with your writing? Um, as far as my physical space, I've kind of, oh, this is sad, I've kind of given up on it. It's sort of, you know what, if there's a power outlet and nothing's on fire, it's fine. We're fine. There can be noise. There can be people. It's okay. I don't mind if your cat's on my head. Whatever. As long as there's power and nothing's on fire, I'll get the work done. As far as my computer, it's <laughs> my desktop is a mess. There's icons everywhere. But the programs I actively use when I'm writing, I use, I type everything in Word. I'm addicted to Word. I've never managed to switch out of it. I have um, OneNote. I'm old school. I love my OneNote files because I can like draw maps and do everything in it. I have Scrivener 2, but I'm still addicted to OneNote. So I, I'm trying to make the transition. I just, OneNote's purple and it brings me more joy. So I end up using that more anyway. And then I have like my, my research tabs that I do. I do save those into Scrivener. That is easier. But I have all those things. Once I've gotten out of the writing phase, I use Vellum. More accurately, I make my husband use Vellum to <laughs> format the books, to publish them. 
And from there, I have all of my like Excel sheets for ads and everything like that. Fantastic. That's really great. I love when people take their writing seriously as a business and they've got all their programs, they've got their Excel sheets, like they're ready to go and totally prepared for that. Does that kind of translate over into how you do your character building as well? How do you flesh out the characters that you're writing? I have, so right now I'm working on, uh, it's the first series that I've ever done without having a publisher touch it, which is amazing because I actually get to make all of those decisions and they don't get to tell me what to do, which is Terrifying and fantastic at the same time. Um, for that, I have mostly in my OneNote because it's purple. Uh, I have the list of characters for my primary characters. I have the physical description, what their primary motivation is, if there's any like weird physical tick they have. Then from there, I tend to, I don't list my characters alphabetically, which I know some people would definitely not agree with. I group my characters by social situation, for lack of a better phrase. So if you are like a soldier, all my soldiers go together. All of like these people go together and they all go in a group. Anytime they get a physical description or like a weird mannerism or they punch somebody, I just pop on over to the other document, type it in real quick. And that way, you know, when I go back 100,000 words later, I know which punch soldier punched who, which is shockingly easy to forget. So I do keep track of all those things like that for the Anna Vilbria series. And no, I don't think any reader is ever going to necessarily glean this from the text. But in my head, Anna has an Irish accent. Ooh. Book's not set in Ireland, but it's meticulously written with that dialect even though if you can read it without it no one's gonna know there are no apostrophes cutting through words or anything like that but you can read it like that and in my head it's how it's done I don't I don't think any reader is ever gonna pick up on that but those are the weird things that I decide on that I'm like well this is gospel now and we are in it to win it and yep she she has an Irish accent. All of I, it. She is. It's a first person book too. So all of it. <laughs> That's amazing. But I love that because it helps with consistency and it really helps to build those characters, even if the fans don't know it. Well, it's, it's helped me a lot with, because all of the, the world building is so specifically from her point of view, because it is a first person series. Um, it's helped a lot with the word painting where I have restrictions on what words I can use because it is a fantasy novel. So I can't use anything that a girl from a small village wouldn't know. I can't do it. She has never seen an ocean. There are no waves. Can't happen because I am restricted to her. And so it's, I think it's a much more honest and almost visceral text within the higher anxiety moments because there is that limitation on it. And that's been a really interesting and fun thing to explore. I love that. And you mentioned that it kind of lends itself to your world building. So what does that look like for your process of world building and how do you keep track of it? Um, very sketchily drawn maps. <laughs> um, I have in my purple one now, I have a map of the whole country of Elbrea with there's one version that's pretty. It's not pretty. I'm 
art is not my thing. But it's there's a pretty version where it's just like the little towns and where they go. And then there is a version that has the arrows of like, this is 60 miles. This is 80 miles. Because in my fantasy world, they use miles. I, I don't know. But yeah, let's see. We're good. It, it works. It works. But so it's all measured out like that. And then I also have a text sheet where whenever they say like, this is this many miles from that, like they verbalize it. This is 30 miles up the road. This is five miles that way. I keep a list of what they have said to make sure that I don't lie to myself on my map. Always a good choice. Make sure you have that list. Make sure everything is correct. Because I know for me, it's definitely come back to bite me if I haven't written down one of those little details. And eventually, it, it definitely comes back. Do you find that's a thing? Oh, yeah. I had a mystery couch in the tethering. And it wasn't until my third publisher that anyone noticed this couch. We, we I don't know how the couch got there. There was a random couch so even like furniture and rooms if it's really important I keep a list of like what furniture exists in this space because I learned from the couch incident and there are early copies of the tethering out there with an extra couch <laughs> that's amazing I love that you kind of like draw out your maps and you write down the physical things do you do that for things other than location based do you actually draw the rooms that you've created or is it kind of strictly with those maps Mostly strictly with the maps for the drawing, the lists go for everything. I I don't know if it's because I travel so much as just a human, but I have a problem with travel times, with unrealistic travel times, especially in modern set worlds. So in all of my projects, there is, I do a lot of research into, wait, how long would it actually take me to get from Rhode Island to Connecticut? There is nothing that makes me more unable to believe a book than if they're in Central Park and then they walk for two minutes and are in Times Square. No, that's not a thing. Also, there is no ferry to the Statue of Liberty from Times Square. That's not a thing. Shocking. And so those are those are <laughs> details that I pay very close attention to because as a reader, ooh, as a reader, it bothers me so much. We'll be right back with more from author Megan O'Russell after a quick word from one of our affiliates. Are you a fan of dystopia? I am a huge fan of dystopian stories from The Hunger Games to Divergent to the Selection series, which is why when I tend to write, I usually sway toward that dystopian bent to my stories. One of my all-time favorite books happens to be my Jaded Duology, which is the number 74 best-selling book out of every book in existence on Amazon, number one in all of its categories. Let me tell you a little bit about it. If the only way to stay alive was to convince your new husband not to murder you and make it look like an accident, could you do it? At 18, Jade shouldn't have to be forced to marry the son of her father's enemy as part of a revenge plot for a failed rebellion. When she's thrown into the life of being the wife of the commander's son and heir, her only hope for survival is convincing Roan Diamond to actually fall in love with her so that he doesn't kill her on his father's wishes. While a dutiful son, Roan shouldn't have to trick his new wife into believing his family accepts her, but as the only one in a position to make the country believe Jade is part of their family, he will do what he has to before his family murders his young bride and makes it look like an accident to get back at Jade's father. With half the country trying to protect Jade and the other half oblivious to the atrocities committed at the commander's hands, it's a race to see who will win at a deadly game of cat and mouse. One chooses life, one chooses death. In the midst of chaos, only one will succeed. 
Now, Jaded has been called the YA dystopian Mr. and Mrs. Smith because you never know whose side people are on and who's going to die. And this book is so amazing and so heartbreaking that my fans actually had to create an emotional support group just to help each other get through the incredible ending of the first book in the series. Speaking of which, if you are a fan of Dystopia and this sounds like a book that you would like, you can actually read it for free right now in ebook form. You can go to jadedinfo.kmrobinsonbooks.com for more information. That's J-A-D-E-D-I-N-F-O dot K-M-R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N books dot com for more. And if you love it, don't forget to leave a review for me because that helps me to sell more books. All right. Are you ready? Let's get back into our conversation with author Megan O'Russell. So do you do a lot of research for your books? Um, yes. For, especially for the um, modern urban fantasy type books, I do a lot of place research, climbed a mountain once to make sure it would work, you know, reasonable, logical things that you do for my Girl of Glass series because it it's a mid-apocalyptic, paranormal, dystopian thing. Um, and the people are basically living in glorified biodomes. So I visited a lot of biodomes and atriums, even did the behind the seeds tour at Disney's Epcot to see exactly how they grow all their plants. So a lot of things like that, it varies from book to book what I'm like, I know enough about this and what I get a little neurotic about, but there is always one aspect in every book where it becomes the thing that I like fixate on. Tell the truth. Have you ever written something into your book specifically so you could go do the research for it? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, you kind of, you kind of have to like, if it's something that's going to bring you joy and keep you interested in the project, especially when you become a more prolific author and it's so easy to get like project distraction if you need to write something in because it's going to bring you joy and keep you motivated, it's your book. Do it. As I mean, don't, you know, have space aliens randomly come down for no reason for two pages and then readers get confused. But if it fits, yeah, do it. It's, it's your world building. Some readers might hate it. Other readers are going to think you're the best thing ever. So go for it. I love it. And I love that you're very much a, if it brings you joy, if it makes you happy, if it fits what you're doing, go ahead and do that because people will be drawn to it or maybe not so much, but do what you want because it makes you happy within your books. And that actually leads me to my next question because I want to talk about the advice you would give to some of our listeners. So as a well-established author who has many, many books out and has been published for many, many years, what advice do you have for someone who is an aspiring author who is just trying to get into the industry? I would say examine your goals before you go into it. I think a lot of people have a story to tell. And they do write a story, and that's great. But just because you have a story to tell doesn't mean you have to get it published for that story to be real. Publishing is hard, whether you go indie or traditional, and I have seen it break some people's love of writing. And if all it is is a story in your notebook and that's what brings you joy, that is completely valid. You are a writer. You don't need to be published to be able to say that. You are a writer. You are doing very well. 
It's okay to do something just for the love of it. If that's where your journey stops, great. That's totally great. If you really want your book out in the world and you want to be a published author, then my advice would become look away from the community you're already in. Look towards other communities online. Step away from your local writers group. Look outside of the narrative of how you're supposed to be published that you've already been told because there are a lot of paths and it is so easy to get fixated on how one person told you to do it was right. So step away from that. Get a dozen different opinions on how it should be done. Get 50 more. And then decide what you want to do because there is no one right way. And the second you fixate on that, you're going to make yourself miserable. And it's not worth it. There are too many ways to do it to make yourself miserable over one person's opinion. Just do your research and, and then decide where you want to go. Fantastic. What advice do you have for people who are brand new inside of the industry? So maybe their book is coming out in the next couple of months or their book has just come out. First of all, build your newsletter. There are a lot of great books and resources on that. So I won't give you like particular advice, but do the research and start it because you're going to regret it if you don't start it before that book, first book goes out. It doesn't matter how unprepared and unfancy you feel, like just do it, start it. Other than that, I would say take a breath and let yourself not be excited if that's not where you are. There is this very big like, oh, it's your debut. It's this, it's that. And yeah, that's exciting. And if that's how you feel about it, that's great. But I've had a lot of author friends who get to release day and they're so exhausted they're not excited about it. And then there's this huge feeling of guilt because you've been granted this gift of publication and you're not over the moon. And it's okay to be exhausted. It's okay to get the book in your hands and be like, I don't even want to look at this anymore. I'm so tired. Like all I want to do is sleep for a week. I don't even care anymore. Whatever your emotional journey is in that publication, it's okay it's okay to go on a Facebook group and say, I feel so overwhelmed. I don't even know if I want to have a book release drink, let alone a party. Like, I don't, I don't want to be there. And that's okay. It's not a happy, peppy, over-the-moon experience all the time. That's normal. You still deserve to be published. Your book is still going to be great. It's okay. Just let yourself feel where you are. It's stressful. You're going to be great. And that's really important, especially for those of us who have been in the industry a little while. We know that there are ups and downs, and sometimes you just feel exhausted. Sometimes it is overwhelming. So what advice do you have for those of us who have been in the industry for a minute? Don't be afraid to ask your community for help. And I've I've been in the industry for eight years. I've only been in this indie route for almost a year now. But there does come this stigma once we've been around for a while that people start feeling like they should have the answers instead of be able to ask the questions. It's okay. It's okay 10 book releases in to say, I don't know how to do this. I need help. I need to change tactics. 
it's, it is totally okay to still be confused. No, I don't care if you're 50 books in the industry changes every day. The ads platform updates all the time. So it's okay to say, I know I should know what I'm doing. Can someone help me? And there is absolutely no shame in asking for that hand up, no matter where you are in it. There is no time when it becomes inappropriate to ask for help. Like, no, we are all on this journey. And it doesn't matter if you're technically higher up the mountain than I am. I still might have something valuable to offer you. Someone who is still, you know, very early on their journey could have something valuable to offer me. And we we have to be willing to accept that no matter where in the process we are. And the great thing is that people have such a wide array of knowledge and, and experiences, and they can really bring a lot to other people, especially when they ask that question. And you in particular have a wide range of knowledge and experiences and books within the industry. So can you tell us a little bit about what your writing is about? Sure. I have, oh, right now I have five different YA series that range from urban fantasy, urban fantasy, urban fantasy to dystopian. Um, The Tethering was my first series to come out. It is a urban fantasy that is very hopeful and loving and dark and horrible things still happen, of course, but it is a very, I think hopeful series is the best way to describe it. Girl of Glass is my paranormal dystopian series, which is not so hopeful. It takes the dystopian tropes and looks at them from the point of view who's of someone who is in the upper 1% who has chosen to survive. So it looks a lot about, it looks at what we should do in response to all the horrible things happening around us. And it's not a moralistic tale, but it is dark because a lot of horrible things would happen if, you know, the apocalypse had come. So there's that. Uh, Tale of Brian Adams is my tongue-in-cheek black sheep book that does so well in Germany. It's a snarky, weird little look at a 16-year-old wizard in Manhattan who discovers he's a wizard because he finds a cell phone that contains a magical library. There are mole people living under the subway tunnels. The Statue of Liberty comes into play. Like, it's very strange, very funny. It's just, he's just brilliant. Maggie Trent is a second world fantasy series that spun off from the tethering series out of a audience review. Actually, someone said they wanted a whole series built in the sirens realm and the tethering. And I said, okay, so that's there now. Um, and then the Anna Vilbrea series is a fantasy assassin tale is the newest project that I'm working on. So all kinds of different niches, they all fall into YA speculative fiction, but they're all very unique. That's amazing. I love that. And if you guys are interested, Megan is fantastic about hopping on social media and interacting with you and chatting with you. So Megan, where can everybody find you on social? Uh, I am on Facebook. Uh, You can look up just Megan O'Russell. There is a little apostrophe after the O before the R in O'Russell. Or you can just do O'Russell Author on Facebook. On Twitter, I am Megan O'Russell. On Instagram, I am O'Russell Megan. And I actually have a podcast as well. It should be on basically any platform you're looking for. It is A Book and a Dream. Uh, You can also find me on YouTube under the same name. 
Well, thank you so much, Megan. We appreciate you being here and sharing all of your knowledge, and we can't wait to have you back. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it, friends. That is how author Megan O'Russell joined the publishing industry. She had a bit of a rocky start, but dang, has that girl succeeded since she jumped into the publishing industry. Now, in the next episode, we're actually going to be talking all about why publishing lawyers are absolutely 110% essential even if you have a book agent. So this is something that I talk about a lot, and I can't wait to break down exactly why this is so incredibly important, especially if you are jumping into the industry or you're about to sign a book deal or you're hoping to one day sign a book deal. This could make or break your career. It is 100% the most important thing you can do in your publishing career. I'm taking a look at exactly why that is and why that's so incredibly important. So make sure you're hitting the subscribe button because you do not want to miss the next episode of the Hey, I'm Writing podcast, the spin-off to Young Adult Edition. Speaking of which, we do go live every single Monday on Facebook.com slash Young Adult Edition for our live show. You do not want to miss out. We're having all the fun with amazing authors over there. We've got some really cool people coming up in the not-too-distant future, so stay tuned. Big things are coming. Make sure you hit the subscribe notification bell over on Facebook and on YouTube, and then join me every single Saturday for a brand new episode of Hey, I'm Writing, the spin-off podcast. I'm your host, K.M. Robinson, and I will see you again in the next episode as we're breaking down everything you need to know about making sure you're staying legal inside of the publishing industry by working with that lawyer who's really going to protect you in ways that agents can't. All right, I'll see you again in the next episode. Until then, have a great day and stay inspired.